0: Send Me to Sleep is a production of Slumber Studios, and is made possible thanks to the generous support of our sponsors and Premium members. If you'd like to listen ad-free, you can try out Premium free for seven days by following the link in the episode notes. Now, we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep. The place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, thanks for joining me, and for taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Part 2, Chapters 17 and 18. In the previous chapters, the Nautilus found itself trapped under an iceberg and after days of struggle, finally escaped. In the following chapters, the Nautilus heads towards the Amazon River. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy. Take a deep, relaxing breath and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice, so let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. 17. From Cape Horn to the Amazon How I got onto the platform, I have no idea. Perhaps the Canadian had carried me there. But I breathed. I inhaled the vivifying sea air. My two companions were getting drunk with the fresh particles. The other unhappy men had been so long without food that they could not with impunity indulge in the simplest ailments that were given them. We on the contrary had no end to restrain ourselves. We could draw this air freely into our lungs, and it was the breeze, the breeze alone that filled us with this keen enjoyment." "'Ah,' said Concier, "'how delightful this oxygen is. Master need not fear to breathe it. There is enough for everybody.'" Ned Land did not speak, but he opened his jaw wide enough to frighten a shark. Our strength soon returned, and, when I looked round me, I saw we were alone on the platform. The foreign seamen in the Nautilus were contented with the air that circulated in the interior. None of them had come to drink the open air. The first words I spoke were words of gratitude and thankfulness to my companions. Ned and Concier had prolonged my life during the last hours of this long agony. All my gratitude could not repay such devotion. My friends, said I, we are bound one to the other forever. "'and I am under infinite obligation to you.' "'Which I shall take advantage of,' exclaimed the Canadian. "'What do you mean?' said Concierge. "'I mean that I shall take you with me when I leave this infernal Nautilus.' "'Well,' said Concierge, After all this, are we going right? Yes, I replied, for we are going the way of the sun, and here the sun is in the north. No doubt, said Netland, but it remains to be seen whether we will bring the ship into the Pacific or the Atlantic Ocean, that is into frequented or deserted seas. I could not answer that question, and I feared that Captain Nemo would rather take us to the vast ocean that touches the coasts of Asia and America at the same time. He would thus complete the tour round the submarine world and return to those waters in which the Nautilus could sail freely. We ought before long to settle this important point. The Nautilus went at a rapid pace. The polar circle was soon passed, and the course shaped for Cape Horn. We were off to the American point, March 31st at seven o'clock in the evening. Then all our past sufferings were forgotten. The remembrance of that imprisonment in the ice was effaced from our minds. We only thought of the future. Captain Nemo did not appear again, either in the drawing room or on the platform. The point shown each day on the planosphere and, marked by the lieutenant, showed me the exact direction of the Nautilus. Now on that evening, it was evident, to my great satisfaction, that we were going back to the north by the Atlantic. The next day, April 1st, when the Nautilus ascended to the surface some minutes before noon. We sighted land to the west. It was Terra del Fuego, which the first navigators named thus from seeing the quantity of smoke that rose from the natives' huts. The coast seemed low to me, but in the distance, rose high mountains. I even thought I had a glimpse of Mount Saramiento that rises 2,070 yards above the level of the sea, with a very pointed summit, which, according as it is misty or clear, is a sign of fine or wet weather. At this moment, The peak was clearly defined against the sky. The Nautilus, diving again under the water, approached the coast, which was only some few miles off. From the glass windows in the drawing room, I saw long seaweeds and gigantic fuchsiae and varish, of which the open polar sea. Contains so many specimens. With their sharp, polished filaments, they measured about 300 yards in length. Real cables, thicker than one's thumb, and, having great tenacity, they are often used as ropes for vessels. Another weed, known as velp, with leaves four feet long buried in the coral concretions, hung at the bottom. It served as nest and food for myriads of crustacean mollusks, crabs and cuttlefish. Their seals and otters had splendid repast, eating the flesh of fish with sea vegetables, according to the English fashion. Over this fertile and luxuriant ground, the Nautilus passed with great rapidity. Towards evening, it approached the Falkland Group, the rough summits of which I recognized the following day. The depth of the sea was moderate. On the shores, our nets brought in beautiful specimens of seaweed and particularly a certain fucus, the roots of which were filled with the best mussels in the world. Geese and ducks fell by dozens on the platform, and soon took their places in the pantry on board. When the last heights of the Falklands had disappeared from the horizon, The Nautilus sank to between 20 and 25 yards and followed the American coast. Captain Nemo did not show himself. Until the 3rd of April, we did not quit the shores of Patagonia, sometimes under the ocean, sometimes at the surface. The Nautilus passed beyond large estuaries formed by Uruguay. Its direction was northwards and followed the long windings of the coast of South America. We had then made 1,600 miles since our embarkation in the seas of Japan. About 11 o'clock in the morning, the Tropic of Capricorn was crossed on the 37th meridian, and we passed Cape Frio standing out to sea. Captain Nemo, to Nedland's great displeasure, did not like the neighbourhood of the inhabited coasts of Brazil, for we went at a giddy speed. Not a fish, not a bird of the swiftest kind could follow us and the natural curiosities of these seas escaped all observation. This speed was kept up for several days and in the evening of the 9th of April we sighted the most westerly point of South America that forms Cape San Roque, but then the Nautilus swerved again and sought the lowest depth of a submarine valley, which is between this cape and Sierra Leone on the African coast. This valley bifurcates to the parallel of the Antilles, and terminates at the mouth by the enormous depression of 9,000 yards. In this place, the geological basin of the ocean forms, as far as the Lesser Antilles, a cliff to three and a half miles perpendicular in height, and, at the parallel of the Cape Verde Islands, another wall not less considerable that encloses thus all the sunk continents of the Atlantic. The bottom of this immense valley is dotted with some mountains that give to these submarine places a picturesque aspect. I speak, moreover, from the manuscript charts that were in the library of the Nautilus charts evidently due to Captain Nemo's hand, and made after his personal observations. For two days, the desert and deep waters were visited by means of the inclined planes. The Nautilus was furnished with long, diagonal, broad sides, which carried it to all elevations. But on the 11th of April, it rose suddenly, and land appeared at the mouth of the Amazon River, a vast estuary, the embouchure of which is so considerable that it freshens the seawater for the distance of several leagues. The equator was crossed. Twenty miles to the west were the Quineys, a French territory, on which we could have found an easy refuge. But a stiff breeze was blowing, and the furious waves would not have allowed a single boat to face them. Ned Land understood that, no doubt, for he spoke no word about it. For my part, I made no allusion to his schemes of flight, for I would not urge him to make an attempt that must inevitably fail. I made the time pass pleasantly by interesting studies. During the days of April 11th and 12th, the Nautilus did not leave the surface of the sea and the net brought in a marvellous haul of zoophytes, fish, and reptiles. Some zoophytes had been fished up by the chain of the nets. They were for the most part beautiful phyctelines, belonging to the Actinidian family, and among other species, the Phyctalus protexta, particular to that part of the ocean with a cylindrical trunk ornamented with vertical lines, speckled with red dots, crowning a marvellous blossoming of tentacles. As to the mollusks, they consisted of some I had already observed, turretellas, olive porphyrus, with regular lines intercrossed with red spots standing out plainly against flesh. Odd petresses like petrified scorpions, translucent helias, argonauts, cuttlefish, excellent eating, and certain species of calamars that naturalists of antiquity have classed among the flying fish and that serve principally for bait for cod-fishing. I had now an opportunity of studying several species of fish on these shores. Amongst the cartilaginous ones, Petromyzon pricker, a sort of eel, fifteen inches long, with a greenish head, violet fins, grey-blue back, brown belly, silvered and sewn with bright spots, the pupil of the eye encircled with gold, a curious animal that the current of the Amazon had drawn to the sea, for they inhabit fresh waters, tuberculated streaks with pointed snouts, And a long, loose tail, armed with a long, jagged sting. Little sharks a yard long, grey and whitish skin, and several rows of teeth, bent back that are generally known by the name pantoufles. Vespertilios, a kind of red isosceles triangle, half a yard long, to which the pectorals are attached by fleshy prolongations that make them look like bats, but that their horny appendage, situated near the nostrils, has given them the name of sea unicorns. Lastly, some species of ballistae, the curasavian, whose spots were of brilliant gold colour, and the capriscus of clear violet, and with varying shades like a pigeon's throat. I end here this catalogue, which is somewhat dry perhaps, but very exact, with a series of bony fish that I observed in passing belonging to the Apteronotes and whose snout is as white as snow. The body of a beautiful black, marked with a very long, loose, fleshy strip. Odontognathes, armed with spikes. Sardines nine inches long, glittering with a bright silver light. A species of mackerel provided with two anal fins Centronotes of a blackish tint, that are fished for with torches, long fish two yards in length, with fat flesh, white and firm, which, when they are fresh, taste like eel, and when dry, like smoked salmon. Labres, half red covered with scales only at the bottom of the dorsal and anal fins. Chrysoptera, on which gold and silver blend their brightness with that of the ruby and topaz. Golden-tailed spears, the flesh of which is extremely delicate, and whose phosphorescent properties betray them in the midst of the waters orange-coloured spears with long tongues, engrés with gold coral fins, dark thorn tails, anableps of Surinam, etc. Notwithstanding this, etc., I must not omit to mention fish that Concier will remember, and with good reason, One of our nets had hauled up a sort of very flat ray fish, which, with the tail cut off, formed a perfect disc and weighed twenty ounces. It was white underneath, red above, with large round spots of dark blue encircled with black. Very glossy skin terminating in a blobbed fin. Laid out on the platform, it struggled, tried to turn itself by convulsive movements, and made so many efforts that one last turn had nearly sent it into the sea. But Concier, not wishing to let the fish go, rushed to it and, before I could prevent him, had seized it with both hands. In a moment, he was overthrown, his legs in the air and half his body paralysed, crying. Oh, master, master, help me. It was the first time the poor boy had spoken to me so familiarly. The Canadian and I took him up and rubbed his contracted arms till he became sensible. The unfortunate concierge had attacked a cramp fish of the most dangerous kind, the kamana. This odd animal, in a medium conductor like water, strikes fish at several yards' distance. So great is the power of its electric organ, the two principal surfaces of which do not measure less than 27 square feet. The next day, April 12th, the Nautilus approached the Dutch coast, near the mouth of the Maroni, there several groups of sea cows herded together. They were manatees that, like the dugong and the Stellara, belonged to the Skenian order. These beautiful animals, peaceable and inoffensive, from 18 to 21 feet in length, weigh at least 1,600 weight i told ned land and concier that provident nature had assigned an important role to these mammalia indeed they like the seals are designed to graze on the submarine prairies and thus destroy the accumulation of weed that obstructs the tropical rivers and do you know i added what has been the result since men have almost entirely annihilated this useful race that the putrefied weeds have poisoned the air and the poisoned air caused the yellow fever that desolates these beautiful countries enormous vegetations are multiplied under the torrid seas and the evil is irresistibly developed from the mouth of the Rio de la Plata to Florida. If we are to believe Tucenel, this plague is nothing to what it would be if the seas were cleaned of whales and seals, then infested with pulps, medusae, and cuttlefish, they would become immense centers of infection, since their waves would not possess these vast stomachs that God has charged to infest the surface of the sea. Chapter 18 The Pulps For several days, the Nautilus kept off from the American coast. Evidently, it did not wish to risk the tides of the Gulf of Mexico or of the Seas of the Antilles. April 16th, we sighted Martinique and Guadalupe from a distance of about 30 miles. I saw their tall peaks for an instant. The Canadian who counted on carrying out his projects in the Gulf by either landing or hailing one of the numerous boats that coast from one island to another was quite disheartened. Flight would have been quite practicable if Ned had been able to take possession of the boat without the captain's knowledge but in the open sea, it could not be thought of. The Canadian concierge and I had a long conversation on this subject. For six months we had been prisoners on board the Nautilus. We had travelled 17,000 leagues, and, as Ned Land said, there was no reason why it should come to an end. We could hope nothing from the captain of the Nautilus, but only from ourselves. Besides, for some time past, he had become graver, more retired, less sociable. He seemed to shun me. I met him rarely. Formerly. He was pleased to explain the submarine marvels to me. Now he left me to my studies and came no more to the saloon. What change had come over him? For what cause? For my part, I did not wish to bury with me my curious and novel studies. I had now the power to write the true Book of the Sea, and this book, sooner or later, I wished to see daylight. The land nearest us was the archipelago of the Bahamas. There rose high submarine cliffs, covered with large weeds. It was about eleven o'clock when Ned Land drew my attention to a formidable pricking, like the sting of an ant which was produced by means of large seaweed. Well, I said, these are proper caverns for pulps and I should not be astonished to see some of these monsters. What? Said Concier. Cattlefish? Real cattlefish of the cephalopod class? No, I said. Pulps of huge dimensions. I will never believe that such animals exist, said Ned. Well, said Concierge. With the most serious air in the world, I remember perfectly to have seen a large vessel drawn under the waves by an octopus's arm. You saw that, the Canadian said. Yes, Ned. With your own eyes. With my own eyes. Where, pray? Might that be? At St Malo, answered Concier. In the port, said Ned, ironically. No, in a church, replied Concier. In a church, cried the Canadian. Yes, friend Ned in a picture representing the pulping question. Good, said Ned Land, bursting out laughing. He is quite right, I said. I've heard of this picture, but the subject represented is taken from a legend, and you know what to think of legends in the matter of natural history. Besides, when it is a question of monsters, the imagination is apt to run wild. Not only is it supposed that these pulps can draw down vessels, but a certain Olus Magnus speaks of an octopus a mile long that is more like an island than an animal. It is also said That the Bishop of Nidros was building an altar on an immense rock. Mass finished, the rock began to walk and returned to the sea. The rock was a pulp. Another bishop, Pontipidion, speaks also of a pulp on which a regiment of cavalry could maneuver. Lastly, The ancient naturalists speak of monsters whose mouths were like gulfs and which were too large to pass through the straits of Gibraltar. But how much is true of these stories? asked Concier. Nothing, my friend, at least of that which passes the limit of truth to get to fable or legend. Nevertheless, there must be some ground for the imagination of the storytellers. One cannot deny that pulps and cuttlefish exist of large species, inferior, however, to cetacea. Aristotle has stated the dimensions of a cuttlefish as five cubits or nine feet two inches Our fishermen frequently see some that are more than four feet long. Some skeletons of pulps are preserved in the Museum of Triste and Monteplier, that measure two yards in length. Besides, according to the calculations of some naturalists, one of these animals, only six feet long, would have tentacles twenty-seven feet long that would suffice to make a formidable monster. Do they fish for them in these days? asked Ned. If they do not fish for them, sailors see them at least. One of my friends, Captain Paul Boss of Javier, has often affirmed that he met one of these monsters of colossal dimensions in the Indian Sea, but the most astonishing fact, and which does not permit of the denial of the existence of these gigantic animals, happened some years ago, in 1861. What is the fact? asked Land. This is it. In 1861 to the northeast of Tenerife, very nearly in the same latitude we are in now. The crew of the dispatch boat Elector perceived a monstrous cattlefish swimming in the waters. Captain Boga went near to the animal and attacked it with harpoon and guns, without much success, for balls and harpoons glided over the soft flesh. After several fruitless attempts, the crew tried to pass a slip knot round the body of the mollusk. The noose slipped as far as the tail fin, and there stopped. They tried then to haul it on board, but its weight was so considerable that the tightness of the cord separated the tail from the body, and, deprived of this ornament, it disappeared under the water. Indeed, is that a fact? An indisputable fact, my good Ned. They proposed to name this pulp bogus cattle What length was it? asked the Canadian. Did it not measure about six yards? said Concier, who posted at the window, was examining again the irregular windings of the cliff. Precisely, I replied. Its head, rejoined Concier, was it not crowned with eight tentacles, that beat the water like a nest of serpents? Precisely, Had not its eyes placed at the back of its head considerable development? Yes, concierge. And was not its mouth like a parrot's beak? Exactly, concierge. Very well. No offence to master, he replied quietly. If this is not bogus cuttlefish, it is, at least, one of its brothers." I looked at Concier. Ned Land hurried to the window. What a horrible beast, he cried. I looked in my turn and could not repress a gesture of disgust. Before my eyes was a horrible monster, worthy to figure in the legends of the marvelous. It was an immense cuttlefish, being eight yards long. It swam crossways in the direction of the Nautilus with great speed, watching us with its enormous, staring green eyes. Its eight arms, or rather feet, fixed to its head that have given the name of cephalopod to these animals were twice as long as its body and were twisted like the furries of hair. One could see the two hundred and fifty air holes on the inner side of the tentacles. The monster's mouth, a horned beak like a parrot's, opened and shut vertically. Its tongue, a horned substance, furnished with several rows of pointed teeth, came out quivering from this veritable pair of shears. What a freak of nature! A bird's beak on a mollusk. Its spindle-like body formed a fleshy mass it might weigh 4,000 to 5,000 pounds. The varying color changing with great rapidity, according to the irritation of the animal, passed successively from livid gray to reddish brown. What irritated this mollusk? No doubt the presence of the nautilus more formidable than itself and on which its suckers or its jaw had no hold. Yet what monsters these pulps are, what vitality the creator has given them, what vigor in their movements, and they possess three hearts chance has brought us in the presence of this cuttlefish, and I did not wish to lose the opportunity of carefully studying this specimen of the cephalopods. I overcame the horror that inspired me, and, taking a pencil, began to draw it. Perhaps this is the same which the Elector saw," said Concier. No, replied the Canadian, for this is whole, and the other at last its tail. That is no reason, I replied. The arms and tails of these animals are reformed by renewal. And in seven years, the tail of bogus cuttlefish has no doubt had time to grow. By this time, other pulps appeared at the port light. I counted seven. They formed a procession after the Nautilus, and I heard their beaks gnashing against the iron hull. I continued my work. These monsters kept in the water with such precision that they seemed immovable. Suddenly, the Nautilus stopped. A shock made it tremble in every plate. Have we struck again? I asked. In any case replied the Canadian. We shall be free, for we are floating. The Nautilus was floating, no doubt, but it did not move. A minute passed. Captain Nemo, followed by his lieutenant, entered the drawing room. I had not seen him for some time. He seemed dull. Without noticing or speaking to us, he went to the panel, looked at the pulps, and said something to his lieutenant. The latter went out. Soon the panels were shut, the ceiling was lighted, I went towards the captain. A curious collection of pomps, I said. Yes, indeed, Mr. Naturalist, he replied, and we are going to fight them, man-to-beast. I looked at him. I thought I had not heard aright. Man-to-beast, I repeated. Yes sir, the screw is stopped. I think that the only jaw of one of the cuttlefish is entangled in the blades. That is what prevents our moving. What are you going to do? Rise to the surface and slaughter this vermin. A difficult enterprise. Yes, indeed. The electric bullets are powerless against the soft flesh, where they do not find resistance enough to go off. But we shall attack them with the hatchet. And the harpoon, sir, said the Canadian. If you do not refuse my help, I will accept it, Master Lander. We will follow you, I said, and, following Captain Nemo, we went towards the central staircase. There, about ten men with boarding hatchets were ready for the attack. Concier and I took two hatchets. Land seized a harpoon. The Nautilus had then risen to the surface. One of the sailors, posted on the top ladder step, unscrewed the bolts of the panel. But hardly were the screws loosed when the panel rose with great violence, evidently drawn by the suckers of the pulp's arm. Immediately One of these arms slid like a serpent down the opening, and twenty others were above. With one blow of the axe, Captain Nemo cut this formidable tentacle, that slid wriggling down the ladder. Just as we were pressing one on the other to reach the platform, two other arms, lashing the air, came down on the seaman placed before Captain Nemo and lifting him up with irresistible power. Captain Nemo uttered a cry and rushed out. We hurried after him. What a scene. The unhappy man seized by the tentacle, and fixed to the suckers, was balanced in the air at the caprice of this enormous trunk. He rattled in his throat. He was stifled. He cried, help, help. These words, spoken in French, startled me. I had a fellow countryman on board, perhaps several. That heart rending cry. I shall hear it all my life. The unfortunate man was lost. Who could rescue him from that powerful pressure? However, Captain Nemo had rushed to the pulp and, with one blow of the axe, had cut through one arm. His lieutenant struggled furiously against other monsters that crept on the flanks of the Nautilus. The crew fought with their axes. The Canadian, Concierge and I, buried our weapons in the fleshy masses. A strong smell of musk penetrated the atmosphere. It was horrible. For one instant, I thought the unhappy man, entangled with the pulp, would be torn from its powerful suction. Seven of the eight arms had been cut off, one only wriggled in the air, brandishing the victim like a feather. But just as Captain Nemo and his lieutenant threw themselves on it, the animal ejected a stream of black liquid. We were blinded with it. When the cloud dispersed, the cuttlefish had disappeared and my unfortunate countrymen with it. Ten or twelve pulps now invaded the platform and sides of the Nautilus. We rolled pell-mell, into the midst of this nest of serpents that wriggled on the platform in the waves of blood and ink. It seemed as though these slimy tentacles sprang up like the Hydra's head. Ned Land's harpoon, at each stroke, was plunged into the staring eyes of the cuttlefish. But my bold companion, was suddenly overturned by the tentacles of a monster he had not been able to avoid. Ah, how my heart beat with emotion and horror. The formidable beak of a cuttlefish was open over Land. The unhappy man would be cut in two. I rushed to his secure But Captain Nemo was before me. His axe disappeared between the two enormous jaws, and miraculously saved. The Canadian, rising, plunging his harpoon deep into the triple heart of the pulp. I owed myself this revenge, said the captain to the Canadian. Ned bowed without replying. The combat had lasted a quarter of an hour. The monsters, vanquished and mutilated, left us at last and disappeared under the waves. Captain Nemo, covered with blood, nearly exhausted, gazed upon the sea that had swallowed up one of his companions, and great tears gathered in his eyes.